like Jesus loved people in the world. God, I would pray that you would help us uh, this weekend as we are um, remembering brothers and sisters that have been lost to bring us freedom to even gather like this today. It's humbling. And we're thankful for those. Uh, We would pray that uh, you would help us to use this opportunity that we have of freedom for your good. Help us to use it for your glory. We don't have to hide in shame as many do around the world. God, I would pray that you would use us in a mighty way. I pray that you would allow it, help us to be used by you. God, we're so thankful to be here this morning. We look forward to hearing from your word today because we know that that is what changes us. And so we pray that you would change us today in Christ's name. Man, aren't you glad to be here this morning? Yeah. What a gift. I, uh, I had a, an intro ready for you this morning, but I got a, a call, and I wanted to just let you uh, be aware of this this morning. I got a call from a pastor in our community, um, Bruce Stefanik at Church on the Hill, and he had called me this morning and said, would you just ask your people to pray? They uh, showed up at uh, a building that um, somebody had gone through with a sledgehammer and an axe and had demolished all of their equipment, smashed out the windows, gone through the building. And uh, so this morning he says, um, you know, we're not sure what we're going to do. We're looking at, uh, you know, how we're even going to pull off worship. Is it just an acoustic set and shouting from the front or what? So in a discouraged moment, he asked if Salem Heights would pray. So I'd like to start this morning and pray. Here's the one thing that we found. We, we, are, we have different buildings and uh, even certain convictions that are slightly different, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ in this community that are advancing the gospel alongside us. Amen? Amen. And their concern is for the lost and their desire is to see Christ lifted up. And uh, he said, I'm asking other brothers and sisters, would you pray for us? So we're going to start this morning by praying that uh, God would not only uh, bless them, that this morning they'd be able to worship. I told them, hey, um, second service, just come join us if you can't, uh, if you can't do it. Come on in and we'll make room. Um, he, they were considering that. So let's pray for them. But let's also pray, folks, that we would be a place that uh, wherever Christ is lifted up, we're for it. Amen? Wherever Christ is lifted up, we're for it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and uh, we had the privilege this morning of being able to worship uh, unopposed. The only opposition to your glory uh, would be the failings of our own heart. It would be because we desired not to join in, not because there was somebody on the outside holding us back. We praise you for that and give thanks for seasons of peace even as we have a Memorial Day where we think about those who went out and fought on our behalf that we might be able to have a peace such as this. But also we're deeply impacted when in our own community there are other churches that are impacted by those who would oppose the truth. Uh, And this for sure is a violation. And so we pray this morning, Christ, that you would be lifted up, that that church would be able to celebrate 
that they would not unite in bitterness or being bothered, that they would not unite in fear or being overwhelmed, but that they would sense your grace and your presence, that they would desire to replace those things, but also chase after those who have done this harm and tell them of the love of God, that they would want to meet that kind of messiness with grace. Father, help them to lift up the truth in the middle of all this. Father, and help us to be a united community when we see things like this. Help us to run to you and ask you as our Heavenly Father to make it right. We pray that you would guide our time this morning, that we would be focused on you and you alone. We pray in Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, folks, we're going to be in Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, we're in a four-week series called The End is Near. Because it's so sunny out there, you guys needed something to balance it out. <laughs> All right? The end is near. This is actually a discussion that Christ was having with his men. The goal of this was to answer questions that were in their heart as they are looking around at the temple and they can't imagine a more perfect time. Here is Jesus. Here is this glorious place. Surely the kingdom is just right around the corner. And as he begins to correct their thinking and telling them that there is... Still a kingdom to come, but there are things that must happen before that kingdom is in place. They begin to ask questions. Well, what is the timing of this? What are the signs that it's about to happen? They ask natural questions to the Messiah about the timing of the kingdom. I want you to notice every single time that Christ answers these questions, he doesn't stop them and say, no, no, you sillies. There's no real kingdom, all right? I want you to notice that. And, and I want you, if you are coming from a persuasion that says, well, I think that the kingdom is only spiritual, I want you to go back and actually investigate the scriptures and see that Christ did not replace their anticipation of an actual kingdom with a spiritual one. He did say that there was some spiritual work that needed to be done and that, in fact, we are all part of a spiritual kingdom the moment we bow our head to Christ. Amen? Amen. But there's a physical one coming. So this is where he begins to unpack some of those truths for his men. This week we're talking about a gut-wrenching sign. That's because these five verses actually highlight the destruction of Jerusalem. Let's uh, stand and read Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24. And it says this, But when you see Jerusalem... Surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all the things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all of the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Do you believe that Christ spoke those words? You may be seated. We're going to tackle this passage, and uh, remember, uh, over all of these weeks, I just wanted to remind us of some rules. Uh, we're going to go through those rules once again this morning, some rules when you're looking at prophetic literature to make sure that we can 
uh, unpack it for ourselves. And I want to remind you, week after week, you don't need a guru or somebody with a whole bunch of special letters behind their name to understand prophetic literature, okay? You just need to read it. Begin to read it. Begin to look at it. And you will notice as you are comparing passage to passage that certain patterns emerge and it becomes evident that Christ spoke these things, that the Spirit of God had, had uh, those scriptures written so that you would go from darkness to light was always the intention. He did not write things to make you more confused. He didn't write things so that you'd say, oh, that's too deep for me to understand. He wrote these wonderful things so that you would have clarity and so that you would adjust your life so it would make sense today and be prepared for tomorrow. He uses prophecy to do that. A couple of rules. First, literal is best. As you're reading these passages, just take them at face value. If the plain sense makes sense, keep that sense, okay? We doing all right? You guys are super encouraging this morning, all right? You don't look tired at all. You don't. I rely on first service. It's like my cup of coffee in the morning. So if, uh, if you lose some energy here, folks, you're killing me. All right? <laughs> Literal is best. Amen. There we go. That's right. Oh, it's going to get crazy. This is good. Okay. Second thing. Prophecy has a near and far perspective. We're going to tackle that this morning. And we're going to look at this, but a near and far perspective. When you see a wreck on the freeway in the distance, all you see is light and smoke and all of this stuff, and you can't distinguish any of the mess. It's not until you get closer that you can begin to see the distinction between this car or the police officers or the fire department that's helping or whoever it is in that scene. But from a distance, as you're describing it, all you can describe is the wreck or the cataclysm, right? In the same way, when you begin to hear prophetic literature, as we are reading it, as we're understanding it, and we're looking in the distance, we tend to only see one big pileup of things. Christ's intention was that you'd be able to separate those a little bit, and as you get closer, you would be able to see, you, you're going to come upon some wreckage here, and then here, and then here is the final conclusion. You're going to actually see that things progress in stages. Don't be bothered by that. Just understand, that's what happens in all the rest of the world. Every single thing that we touch progresses in stages, true? Near and far perspective is just God looking at it saying, hey, there's multiple aspects to this as they unfold. Pay attention. Third, Jesus taught us how to do this. In chapter 20, we go through and you actually see Christ develop the theme of the stone. We see him develop a verb when he says God is the God of the living right? Not he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he looks back in the Old Testament and he says, pay attention to the verb. It, it actually means he is. That means he right now, currently, they are enjoying his presence today. True? That's our hope, that this isn't all there is. He's got them right now. He is the God of living. And also, uh, he unpacks for them how they were to take a look at the Messiah. How is it that the Messiah can both be a son of David and be referred to as Lord? Well, it's only if he's God. There's a unique person he's talking about. So Christ goes through and shows you, pay attention to the way things are said, and you will begin to see the image come out clearly. Pay attention. So literal is best. Prophecy has a near and far perspective, and Jesus taught us how to do that. 
I want you to remember, we got these amazing pictures being drawn for us by uh, Drew Knox, a high school student, nonetheless. Look at this, this week. Isn't that awesome? Last week, we remember uh, this one as we're talking about persecution. So I have two boxes here, and I told you that the intention wasn't to exegete a picture. We're not going to have you come up and look at the picture and try and figure everything out. It was meant to develop a box in your mind that we would put things in. And as you begin to hear different phrases in Scripture, you can pop those in a box, and then we will apply a lesson that we've learned ever since kindergarten where you pull them out and you say, which one of these is not like the other? And you can begin a process of separation. So last week, it's a good test. We have in our first box here some things that actually are said. If you remember that, things to come, he said... Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and plagues and famines. There'll be terrors, great signs from heaven. All right, you hear wars, verse 9, and disturbances. Don't be terrified. These things have to happen. He actually went through and, and he talks about the signs in the heaven. This is an asteroid that I created myself. It's just uh, cement, but it's a good picture for us. Remember, 16,000 asteroids out there that at any time could come down and change the entirety of planet Earth. And we gave you that statistic purely because the week before it was germs, and we wanted you to freak out every week. <laughs> All right? Uh, volcanic eruptions on the face of the Earth. This is just acne cream. <laughs> I actually didn't have a volcano, so... And there would be famine. This is gluten-free food, okay? <laughs> Signs of a famine are all around us. But remember that in that same exact passage, it says that there would be a persecution. Key phrase in there. It says in verse 12, but before all these things, and then it describes. So it gives you a list of things that are happening that we see around us right now. But before all these things, the sword will go against you. And he's speaking to the disciples. Do you know that so far, every single thing that Christ has said, we have seen? Do you believe that? We've seen it. And we can see that it wasn't talking about a sword in every single generation the same way. In fact, what it's talking about is a sword in that generation that sets a pattern that will happen in, I believe, the time of tribulation. A pattern that happens in those apostles that will also happen in the end times with those end times leaders. Here you have a pattern. He says, for you specifically, in order for the glory and the truth of the gospel to go out, there's going to be a, a harshness. They will hate you specifically for having walked with me in a different way than the turbulence that just happens in the world around. That's significant. So in box one, we see that even as he begins to describe these things, we pull them out and see one part is for a generation. The next part was for that earlier generation. We can see a difference. We're going to see that again this week. We're going to fill this box this week with a place, Jerusalem. I'd have you uh, pay attention here to just a couple of observations. First of all, I want you to see an important prophecy an important prophecy in this box this week. Verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. 
Remember that um, there's a timestamp in verse 12 that's already been issued before all these things. And we're still underneath the you of that. Now, there are times in Scripture where he will say, when you see these, and he's speaking specifically to a group. And there are times where he is speaking where he will say, when you see these things. He's using the proverbial you, and that is when a group of people ever see these things. All right? So he can be talking about an individual in front of him or a, a, a group of people proverbially. What you are watching for in Scripture is if he changes pronouns, if he is saying you and then he switches to they, if he is saying you and he switches to a different group when, when they or when he appears, he's switching those pronouns. He knows you, he, now he's having you switch your focus in there. There's no switch. He's still saying you. Before all these things, you're going to see this, and then there's something that happens. And he's answering a specific question. Lord, when will it? Teacher, verse 7, when therefore will these things happen? When will the walls of the temple fall down? So Christ is underneath that. I just want us to walk through this for a moment and see the description and see if it fits what happened in AD 70. AD 70, by the way, we have two pictures here. There's a picture here of the onslaught that happened uh, in Jerusalem where four legions, four Roman legions, actually surrounded the city, dug in uh, trenches, took over the city, uh, decimated it, tore down the temple, busted up the walls, destroyed there. In fact, all that was left, uh, Josephus says at one point, was an encampment of uh, the Roman legions where they actually made that temple mount their base camp. They said, we're going to sit right here and uh, rule you from this place. Ran everybody off. Um, a, a million people killed in that onslaught. The, the next picture we have here, the rubble that's still there today. You can still see where they had ripped down the walls of the temple and destroyed the edges of the city where they had intended to raise it to the ground. Verse 20 says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is near. Surrounded by the 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th legions, they, they had the entire city. They, they entrenched all the way around that, and they had the entire city surrounded to choke it out. Uh, this was a result of a jo Jewish revolt that led to a Roman response. Their anger was so significant, they wanted to crush the opposition. They were tired of the Jews in that place. Verse 21 says, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. This is an interesting thing, because normally when Rome would surround a location, they wouldn't give you an opportunity to leave. Uh, it's also unique that historians note that Christians, when they found out that this was about to happen, did actually flee uh, they, they left the city. They were in great numbers set apart from the destruction that would afflict that city. They listened to it. They didn't go in. They didn't run that direction. They followed the words of Christ. The most interesting thing was as they were beginning the siege works and setting up, digging those ditches and surrounding the city, in the middle of that, Nero dies. Vespasian, who is uh, over the armies at that time, wanted to go and control Rome, so he stops entrenching around the city. He stops the siege that was happening. He takes off with a group of his men back to Rome, uh, and it actually stopped the uh, onslaught at that point in time, and people were able to flee, to come and go through a gap that was there. A short season after that, 
Vespasian says, hey, I've got it all under control, and Titus was put in control, and, and they continued that siege, and after that point, anybody who was trying to leave the city was crucified, was publicly killed. But for a season, as soon as that stopped, they were able to flee. They were able to follow through with the words that Christ had spoken. Verse 21, flee, leave. Those in the midst of the city, take off. Those who are in the country, don't go in. Verses 22 and 23, it says, because these are the days of vengeance so that all the things that are written would be fulfilled. Once again, 1.1 million, Josephus was saying, are, are killed during that siege. That's an, a, that is a horrifying event. And then it would be horrible for, for families. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Christ's heart is for them even though this day had to come. His heart was for them. Verse 24 says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. That's important. Notice, not a nuclear event, but an actual sword that he says is coming to them. A lot of times you see that it's proverbial. Hey, there's going to be an attack. But I believe specifically here, they actually put them to the sword. And they will be led captive into all the nations. You know, in other prophetic literature, when Jerusalem... Uh, is being highlighted, they would say they will be led captive into Babylon or led captive into Assyria. They would be led captive into different lands. They gave a specific location and even a time. In this one, the specific location is everywhere in the world they're going to be driven away to. It's a pretty unique statement. They are going to go into all of the nations. Is that our experience? Were the Jews driven from that place into all of the nations? Yeah, until 1948, they literally were in all of the nations. And you would be able to identify groups that would identify themselves as Jewish in those locations, driven from um, not just their heartland, but their homeland. Not just for 70 years, but for a specific time until Jerusalem was done being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. That means that there was literally going to be a season, Christ says, until uh, those end times stirrings where Gentiles would be making the decisions of what happens in the land, where Gentiles would be walking across that property without thinking about its holiness, when Gentiles would be, be, would be encroaching on all the edges. Now, before we unpack anything else, I just want to have you pause for a moment and think about this. Jesus was right on every count. Do you know that? Somebody asked me this last week. In fact, I had three different opportunities this week where people asked me to defend what is the reason for the hope that's in you? How come you believe that Jesus Christ is God? I said there's two significant miracles, one that I'm studying this week and one that all the world knows Christians believe that stand out in my mind. First of all, he proclaimed that he would die, be buried, and rise again on the third day. And he did that. Amen? He did that. You've got to deal with that if you're a skeptic. You have got to deal with the fact that he not only proclaimed it, but everybody knew that that's the center point of Christianity. You want to end Christianity and its chronic irritation to the entire world? Find the body. You know why you can't? He's God. Amen? We've gone from an irritation to a blessing in all those communities that realize that he has risen from the grave. But the other thing was, in case you say, well, I don't know, they've done some sneaky trick with the body. You can look at this where Christ right there in that week leading up to it said, look at what's about to happen here. And it is fulfilled. 
Rome wasn't about to destroy these things. They loved historical locations. The world loved historical locations. They loved these magnificent places and to say that they controlled them. In other places, they're rebuilding these major monuments. They're rebuilding places of worship. But this place would get destroyed, and not just destroyed, ruined for generations. Christ spoke the truth. That's an important prophecy. But the second thing I want you to notice is an interesting question, okay? An interesting question. Is this the same thing that is spoken of in other places? All right, are, we, are we ready for just a little bit of a deep dive this morning? Are you guys okay? Yeah. I mean, I know that there's like cottonwoods out there and people are taking stuff to help with their allergies and you're a little fuzzy. Here's what I'd have you do. Write some stuff down and then ask your neighbor later what you said, okay? Because uh, this is important. An interesting question. Is this the same as Matthew 24? Matthew chapter 24. I want you to listen to these words. Matthew chapter 24, and it says, And Jesus answered to them, say, See to it that no one misleads you. Sounds similar. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, and see to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Sounds familiar, but these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Here's a shift. And they'll deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and be hated by the nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because of lawlessness and its increase. Most people's love will grow cold. Therefore, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that's important. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down in. Whoever's in the field must not turn back. Woe to those who are pregnant. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For there will, keep passage, be a great tribulation such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Is this the same? I, I want you to uh, see a picture of Albio. I think we have that up here. Do you see this? It's called a double star. In the distance, if you look at all those stars around it, you'll see just single points of light. But with this one, when you uh, focus in on it, you're actually able to see, and this is a famous one, um, the, the single point of light, the more that you resolve it, the closer that you get, that you see two distinct points of light, two separate stars are piggybacking on the same light trail. From a distance just on earth, looks like one big sun. As you resolve that power and look closer and closer, uh, you see that they're actually greatly separated. That there are two great points of light that look the same in the heavens. Do you want to know that uh, just recently, there's a group of scientists, uh, and they are talking about what you can do as city stargazers, but they made an interesting observation. At least half, get this, of the stars in the universe, some studies suggest as many as 85% are not just single points of light, but instead they belong to a double or multiple star system. In some cases, dwarf stars revolving around a giant sun. In others, two stars of equal size orbiting a common point. 
The key is, by focusing in on them and using your resolve power, you are able to see that it's not one, but two separate points of light. As much as 85% of the heavens, when you are looking up, are multiple stars in a location. Here's something that has happened. You have similar words in a similar location, but I believe that as you begin to look at those and resolve the statements, you are actually seeing something that happened both near and far bookends to the time of the Gentiles. You're going to see a destroyed Jerusalem. And what the scripture said is that you're actually going to see a rebuilt Jerusalem. It's once again going to become a point of contention. And once again, it's going to be attacked for similar reasons in a similar way. Is that important? So how do we know the difference? I actually have a, a phrase in your notes there. I, how do you know that you can get this right? Don't get conned. That's what we put down in there, all right? Don't get conned. I want to walk through a couple of things. When we look at these two passages, and I know we're doing some heavy work this morning, I want to bring us back to an illustration, hopefully, that will make it practical. Uh, but this is important when we're reading these passages, and I think you'll be able to see this on your own. I want you to ask some questions so that you can get this right. First is this, the C in con, did you conflate? That's a big word for, did you jam all of the things together, all right? Did you take the first one and because it sounded similar, put it together with the second one and say it's all got to be the same thing? We conflate stories all the time, all right? Where we're talking about two guys that are on the same trip. We just took a group of guys fishing uh, and as they begin to share their stories, they had similar experiences, but they were on completely different boats. They had different people at the helm. They had uh, different amounts of fish that were caught. But we can begin to conflate the stories. It was just one trip. It, it, the experience was the same. And we begin to list off what happened as if one person experienced it all. We conflate that by putting all of the stories together and, and describing it as if it's just one scene, one person, one boat, one effect when actually there were multiple. Did you conflate these two? In Luke and in Matthew 24, there are many different descriptive terms that show you that, that it's actually talking about two different places. If we stick them all together and just say, let's just make it one event, you'll miss that. Secondly, did you overstate? Let me just give you one, one uh, word. Verse 22 of Luke tw uh, 21. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all the things which are written will be fulfilled. It's hard when you're translating from one language to another, but this word fulfilled, the majority of the time, almost 80% of the time, does not mean that in one single moment everything that was necessary happened, okay? It actually means in order for them to be fulfilled that it adds up our understanding of that event, let me pull it away from Jerusalem to motherhood. Have you ever heard this from a mom? Today I got up, I was late, the kids were just having a hard time, I couldn't figure out how to feed them breakfast, one is crying, one's making a mess, I gotta get them to school. I throw them inside the van, I show up at the school and I'm trying to hand off one of the kids only to realize I never did my hair, it's all wonky and one of them puked on me. And then I get back there and another one is spazzing out and will not take a nap and the house is a complete mess and I was supposed to make a meal for somebody else this evening. And they look at everyone in the room and they say, and that's motherhood, right? Well, is that all there is to motherhood? No, but this is what I would say. If you have an understanding of motherhood that does not have that also in it, you're not done studying, <laughs> okay? 
That's how motherhood is fulfilled. Have you experienced these things? Well, if you've experienced these things, that is a part of your bag. That's how you fulfill your understanding of that. And that's the implication of that Greek term is that with this event and this event and this event, it fulfills it. In order to fulfill it, if this event doesn't happen or this one, it cannot be complete. Okay? So we overstate it when we say it all has to happen in one minute and we jam all of our understanding into one place. We, we don't hold ourselves to that kind of storytelling or discussions in any other realm of life, even as Americans, even in this culture. It uses that word fulfilled, and I think that what is really evident, in fact, in the rest of the scriptures, we allow it room to do this. But it says, and thus it is fulfilled. In other words, this fills up our understanding of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Did you conflate? Did you overstate? Did you forget to note what is not there? Here's a quick list. In Luke's account, there is no mention of the abomination of desolation. That's a specific term that goes back to Daniel. It basically means that there's going to be uh, this antichrist, this person that comes in and creates false worship, desecrates the temple, and forces everybody to worship him or some false idol in that place. That did not happen in AD 70. Every theological persuasion agrees that that did not happen. No mention of abomination of desolation. No mention or reference of Daniel that is mentioned in Matthew. There's no mention in Luke of the flight not being on Sabbath. There's no mention in Luke of uh, the great tribulation, and that is a tribulation unlike any other that ever has happened or will ever happen in the future. So there's a different kind of destruction that happens in Matthew's picture. No mention in Luke of the days needing to be shortened in order for the elect to survive, or so that any flesh would be saved. And no mention of false Christs or false prophets showing signs and wonders in order to deceive the elect. There is a picture that is brewing where you need to note what is the difference. What is not there when you compare those passages? But secondly, I want you to notice what is there. Did you forget to note what is there? In Matthew, once again, it's that tribulation that is unlike any other. When Scripture talks about tribulation, and in particular when it talks about tribulation afflicting his children, he is like any other parent. He takes it serious, okay? He's not just saying something to make you feel a little bit of empathy for the moment. He's not just trying to stir up your affections. When he says there's going to be an affliction that's going to hit you, you should hear a tremor in his voice. You should see a tear in his eye. You should see concern coming from his heart. You should hear in his voice that sense that this is about to happen and I don't want it to happen to you. He speaks of that in Matthew. That there is an abomination of desolation. There's going to be a worship that is forced on you that all of the world will agree this is not right. It's going to create an uproar. Until that happens, Matthew's passage is unfulfilled. In Luke, it actually refers to the time of the Gentiles, something that we can see. There's going to be a season where it's not Jews deciding what happens in their country. It's not Jews deciding what happens in their capital, but actually other people deciding what will happen. Do you know that even in 1948, as Israel is being reestablished, uh, Ben-Gurion actually said, I, I don't know if we want Jerusalem to be a part of this nation. It's too contentious. Make our capital city Mount Carmel, he said. Let them have it. But shortly after that, 
everyone starts warring against it, and the Arabs at the time said, no, I, we don't want that as the deal. We want the whole entire nation back. And so they refused to sign the paperwork, and within a short order, just to keep peace so they wouldn't have rockets lobbed at them, they take over half of the city. And you have east and west Jerusalem, even to this day, listed as the capitals of two separate nations. Gentiles are still trampling underneath their foot the holy places of God. Everyone around was making the decisions for the nation other than the Jewish people themselves, other than the Messiah. That is still the case. We're still in the time of the Gentiles. Do you see it? We still see it. An, a, a prophecy of Christ. We doing okay? I, I know we just went to school real hard right now, okay? Don't worry. It's, you got the rest of the day to unpack this mentally and, and uh, sleep it off. Did you elevate your theology over the Scripture? Here is one of the things that one of the leading guys who said, you know what, I've just had to throw kind of prophecy into one big bag and say, uh, I'm not sure if we can resolve it. Uh, he said, I was concerned that as you begin to look at prophecy, that it's hard for liberal people to understand it. And he said, it just gets too overwhelming to unpack for people. Literally. I'm going to remove my understanding of the millennium because I'm concerned what intellects will do with it. Can you believe that? You know, even some believers have said in the past, hey, I don't know what it's going to be, pre-trib, post-trib. I think I'm, I'm pan-trib, some people have said. It's all going to pan out in the end, right? <laughs> hey, that's okay. But God doesn't give us permission to be spiritual agnostics. To just say, I don't know, and I don't know that you can know. He wrote these things down, and it will sharpen you if you study them. Don't stick your theology in the context and say, because this doesn't fit with what I know, I'm going to have to let it all go. I had one professor, I, I think the only thing that I really learned from him was this phrase, reading the Bible will mess up your theology. Do you know that? <laughs> you read the Bible, you'll find out a lot of things you think are true are not true. You read the Bible, and you'll find out that God's ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. But he wrote it so you would go from confusion to correct thinking. Don't let your theology drive your understanding of Scripture. Let Scripture drive your theology. And finally this, did you destroy the context? When you come to your understanding of whatever Jesus is talking about there and you plug that back into the passage and you read the entire context, read the entire chapter, do you, does it all make sense till you get to your little section you just described and it goes way out here and wonky? All right? If your understanding does not help make the context clean, go back to the chalkboard, the drawing board, and start over. Okay? Are we doing all right? Don't get conned. Use that resolve power, and you will be able to see these two distinct points. So what in the world could we use as an interpretive picture? That's the final part, an interpretive picture. Christ, in Matthew 24, makes an interesting statement in verse 8. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. In fact, he uses that in other places. Birth pangs are the picture that is used here, and I think that this is the most helpful. How is the end times like birth? This is our little baby right here, right? Do you know that the whole entire process of birth is meant to produce something? 
Is anyone here not aware of that? <laughs> if you're not holding a baby at the end of the process, you're not done. That's the way this works. The beginning of birth pangs is a picture here where there actually are, and, and, and you imagine for a moment that a woman who is pregnant for the first time sits down with her doctor and begins to hear from him what is the plan of pregnancy. Do you know that in the discussion of pregnancy that a good doctor isn't just going to talk about the moment of birth where the baby arrives? Is actually going to be talking about everything from the very beginning. What, what is the uh, signs in your body that you're pregnant? What are some of the, the tribulation or concerns that you will have at the very beginning? Is there some sickness that will come? Are there changes that are uncomfortable? Uh, and then we'll get up to the point where he's talking about something called Braxton Hicks. Now, I'm starting to see some faces in here tweak and twinge as I'm getting closer, okay? I'm not going to go too much detail, but here's the reality. Braxton Hicks are not pregnant or are not uh, the, the final moments of birth. True? They're just a little indicator of, hey, something's coming. It's a tremor in the same place, using the same muscles, those contractions, to warn you this is the beginning of what will happen. In Jerusalem, multiple times, you will see what would be best described the beginning of birth pangs as a Braxton Hicks. Something happened here, and the contractions around the world are about to happen, and they're forcing you to pay attention to a location so that your senses are heightened. Do you want to know what happens in those moments? You don't care about Amazon. You don't care about shopping. You don't care about anything else. You don't wanna, there's a hyper-focus on this baby is trying to tell me something, and everything in the world is about that. It's coming, and I can't pay attention to all that other stuff. This is what is in view. Do you know that the entire world, when there are contractions in the Holy Land, stops what they're doing and starts writing and paying attention, even if they don't believe? What's happening in Jerusalem? They don't do that with any other capital. You go to all of Africa. You, can you even name the capitals? Do you even know the conflict that's there? No. You see what's happening in Jerusalem. You have constant pressure in the same area. You have contractions that throughout the ages will have a different purpose. One is to prepare you physically and mentally. One is to start the labor. You go through transition. The final one is the stage to prepare you to receive the baby. The contractions will change, but they're all with that goal. You are not done until you're holding the baby. Amen? Now, here's what I want you to understand. There are many people who at the very beginning had a conversation with their doctor, and he told them all about that. I don't believe that any of them thought that the moment they got prenatal vitamins, the next day they had a baby, and it was all the same level of ease. Okay? And many people, when they have that first conversation with their doctor, might hear all kinds of details, but in their mind is only this one cataclysmic event, and they make everything about that. What Christ is doing here in different scenes, I believe he sits on the Mount of Olives, and he's having a discussion. And in Luke, Luke sees the near part of it. All right? He sees what is about to happen, and Matthew sees what is happening in the difference. And as we use that resolve power, we are seeing bookends. It's going to start with a cataclysm in Jerusalem, and it's going to prove that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. There's going to be a time of the Gentiles that resolves with another time of tribulation where, once again, Jerusalem is the centerpiece, is overwhelming. And you're going to see, like this picture that we have here, Jerusalem once again surrounded by armies with all of them irritated, and God has to step in. That's the bookends on this timepiece. Both of those are in that discussion. 
Both of those are for us today. And both of those are to remind us that what's going on in the world is a lot bigger than just you and I. Amen? You are a part of something a lot bigger than just whether or not you get the treats that you want and the life that you want and the comfort that you want. God is about something much larger. And if you've given your life to him, you're part of a grand story that he will unpack for eternity. Christ piques our interest with his discussion of Jerusalem. Amen? Amen. All right, folks, I know we've been studying, but I'm going to tell you right now, it is worth it. It'll improve you, and it will bless your life if you will take time to study this for yourself. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, this morning have, have stepped into waters that aren't just about encouragement and comfort, but they are about education and preparation, and I pray that you would help us to be informed. Help us to be ready, um, to live every single day in anticipation that Christ will return. Father, you have declared that he will, that we will physically see him, that there is coming a day where he'll set up that kingdom here on earth, and that all of this mess does not end until we see him face to face. Father, we pray, Maranatha, Lord, come. We ask that you'd make it so. Cause our hearts to look forward to that and cause us to live differently, rightly, today, because we look forward to seeing you then. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.